0: Welcome to season two of the Digitalization and Diversity Podcast, a show that tells personal stories and digital journeys of diverse people. My name is Adya and I am your host. Welcome back, everyone, to season two of the Digitalization and Diversity Podcast. Thanks for joining us on the show. I have been awaiting this episode for a while now because today, I have the pleasure to chat with Dr. Monica Cox. For those of you who don't know Dr. Cox, she is a disruptor, a trailblazer, a change agent, and a leader who believes in living an authentic life, even if it makes people uncomfortable. She grew up as an only child in rural Southeast Alabama, where she was raised by her educator parents to persist in the face of personal and professional adversity And as a coach today, she guides clients in the areas of career development, business strategy, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Welcome, Dr. Cox. I am so, so thrilled to have the opportunity to collaborate with you on the DD podcast channel. Could you tell us a bit more about yourself, whatever you're happy to share?
1: Yes. Hi. Thank you for having me. It has indeed been a long time. Um, I know we've been trying to schedule this. So thanks for your patience. I think that you've talked a lot about my business life. And that is something that has emerged recently. I have been a professor for almost 20 years in engineering education. And... I am loving entrepreneurship. I'm loving the creativity that comes with it. And I think the bio that you read is perfect for where I am right now in my life.
0: I mean, you have a very inspiring background and I'm really happy to be able to talk with you on topics that I am looking to dig deeper into this season of the podcast And with that, I want to kick off the episode with your diversity quote that went viral with more than 4 million views and kind of get your reaction to it. So the quote said, instead of showing me your diversity statement, show me your hiring data, your discrimination claim stats, your salary tables, your retention numbers, your diversity policies and your leader's public actions against racism and performative allyship. This for me is such a heavy quote. And when I first came across this, my reaction was, wow, you've kind of hit the nail on the head with that. And I want to start by asking you what triggered this thought and this
1: quote Um, I was even thinking about that as you reread it. I think it's working in environments that always didn't practice authentic diversity. You know, I moved to my most recent organization several years ago, and I specifically asked if they played diversity. Now, that may have been the first time that I actually used that phrase, but what I meant by that was if the things that they said actually matched their actions. And of course, I was told that they didn't play diversity, but over time, I realized that there was a mismatch between my perspective and my expectation and the expectation of people in an organization. And I'm not saying it to knock that organization down. I'm just saying that as I've talked to more people, I just realized that the operationalization of what it means to do diversity work well is not really clear. So in my business, I've trademarked Stop Playing Diversity, and I just started writing down what it meant. Like, what do I mean by that? And so the quote that you see just laid out some really clear points that I speak to my clients about in moving beyond recruiting people and actually wanting to retain people. So it's just how to do authentic diversity. That's exactly what it is. And it comes from lived experience.
0: And when this quote came out, I mean, now it's been some time, but it's kind of stayed on and sustained in the diversity space. Mm -hmm. How have people reacted to you? And and what has been the reaction
1: of others to this quote? Oh, yes. (laughs) I have gotten... A lot of opportunities to talk with people. I've had people across industries engage with the quote. For example, I was quoted in, I think it was the Daily Beast about the fashion industry. So someone saw the quote and they said that that's something that needed to be addressed. Recently, an organization told me that they took this quote and actually used it to develop their equity strategy. So they have hired more women They have increased the salaries of the women. They have created a board, like an accountability board, to make sure they're doing the work. And, you know, I've also worked with a billion dollar company to engage with some of their work. And so to say that it has been lucrative is an understatement, and I appreciate that. But it's also just been a space where I've looked outside of higher ed, which is my area, and I've seen that across sectors. Everyone has similar diversity, equity, and inclusion problems, but people are also looking for very similar solutions to those issues.
0: While trying to make this change and in your role as a change agent, educating others, uh, making others more aware of diversity and allyship topics, you have challenged and continue to challenge the current state of diversity and inclusion. And while diversity as a term can be quite easy to understand in the sense of recognizing individual differences, there are so many layers and dimensions to it. So yeah. can you share a bit more on what is your interpretation of the term diversity and how do you approach the basics of understanding this quite complex topic
1: yes so you're right about diversity and i've heard so many different perspectives as well some people say that diversity has become a buzzword but i think that when you couple diversity with a lot of other terms equity inclusion belonging justice you start getting this richer definition of what it means to work well with people across contexts, but also to respect what those people bring to an environment to make sure that people's views are heard and you know respected. So to me, diversity as an umbrella means that there's no dominant voice in the room. And I use the word voice because I think that voices matter, voices inform policy. Voices lead political movements, voices decide who gets a seat in the organization and who doesn't. And so even though it's so easy to think of diversity as race or gender or sexual orientation, I think that we have to push diversity more broadly to include almost like an intersectional perspective and everything that someone brings like their whole selves to somehow ensure that everyone's whole self can also be present in an environment.
0: And I completely agree. You know, when I got into into the diversity and inclusion space, I had to do a lot of self-reflection and I had to educate myself on first even understanding the language around it. And then, yeah, I was following a lot of people in the space. That's how I found you. I was on social media following people who were creating more awareness and had a purpose in the space. And circling a bit back to your early years, you said that you grew up in rural Alabama. How was your childhood and early years leading up to the professional world? And when did you get more aware of diversity-related topics and start to understand the language around it?
1: So, being, like, growing up in rural Alabama, there are a lot of things that were very similar. You know, when you look at race, for example, it was either black or white. And this was also the place where my ancestors, well, I grew up about seven miles from the land where my ancestors lived after the Civil War and, and you know, slavery was prevalent. So I remember the dirt roads and everything. So it wasn't that I was really exposed to a lot of diversity early on, but through education, through reading and through exposure, I saw that the world was bigger than where I lived. And I wanted to know more about that world. I wanted to meet people. I've always loved people. And so that gave me insights. That showed me, that people can have different perspectives and different perspectives and ways of living and being are not bad, they're just different. You know, I just, I welcome the opportunity to grow up with parents and teachers who pushed me to read literature that I may not have agreed with at first, but I understood that it was someone's point of view. So I've read everything from Gone with the Wind You know, to roots. And if you, and I always use that as a comparison because both of them talked about the Civil War, but one of them talked about the perspective from the South and the Confederacy. And so all the things that you may know about, you know, glorifying slavery. And then roots really talked about what it was like to come from Africa to America and be a slave. And so learning and reading books that offered counter narratives. Stretch my thinking to let me know for everything that I read, that was one perspective. But it also gave me an opportunity to say, This is my belief and to hold on to that, understanding that other people thought differently. And it's that that pushed me into being a researcher. It pushed me into policy. It pushed me into seeing that you have to gather information from different people to make decisions that help the majority of people and address the needs of the majority of people in the world. And I've just always had that belief. I would say that I never wanted to be a diversity, equity and inclusion expert because I felt that it was too easy. I felt that people would start relying on me and they wouldn't do the work themselves but I decided that I would embrace this work when I realized that it was needed and that the perspective that I have is something that you don't see very often in standard spaces. And I needed to use all the gifts, the talents, and my ability to critique and push the envelope to bring deeper conversations into these spaces.
0: Yeah, I'm going to circle back to the topic of having these formalized diversity roles, but mm-hmm. I want to comment a bit on the learning journey, which you mentioned, because I really think it's true that the learning journey never ends. And of course, there is a lot of material and content out there on these topics, especially since, um, since the pandemic. And it does take time to form your own personal view on it and understand what is something or the true values which you kind of stand for. And in this context, the term allyship has become more prominent since the diversity movement gained traction. And as evident from your quote, your podcast and the social media channels, which you are on, you are very vocal about ending performative allyship. Yes. My question to you here is, what
1: is real allyship for you? Well, you know what? This is an excellent question that I love talking about because I feel like I've experienced this too. Like I know what it's like to expect someone to support you and they're not. And some people don't even like the word support, but I do say support because whenever you are working with someone and you're trying to be an ally, it's not really about you. You know, it's you're not at the center of that moment. When you're an ally you are thinking about what that person needs at that time. So, even if you look at like a medical metaphor, you know, if you're if you're an ally and someone says that their leg is hurting, you're not trying to give them an aspirin because they have a headache. They didn't say they had a headache. They said something was wrong with their leg. And so you're doing everything you can to help make them more comfortable, to get help for that leg and to to isolate that area so they can get better. And I think too often allies say, well, I just happen to have aspirin in my purse and that's what I'm going to give you, but that's not what's needed at the time. And I have a colleague, Dr. Kristen Moore, who co-authored a paper with me and we really broke some things down into like allyship at being an advocate and an accomplice. And we say like allyship, like if I am hurt, and an ally will cry. So they're making it about them, themselves. And I appreciate that someone cares, but those tears don't help me. If I'm hurt, then an advocate will call 911. They'll call the ambulance. They'll call the hospital so that someone could come and treat me. But if you're my accomplice, which in some ways people say sounds very criminal-like, but I say that that perfectly describes the intensity with which I'm referring to this, then you're going to bleed with me. You're going to feel the pain with me. You're going to understand what I'm going through. And people often talk about the differences between sympathy and empathy. Maybe you can't empathize because you don't exactly understand the pain, but you can sympathize to the point that you understand that what I need, so it's, my needs are focused on me in this moment. So I feel like, I'll just go back to that word that you used, comes back to being compassionate Being flexible, you know, pliable, being humble, being vulnerable, being alert to the situation and what is needed of you in that moment. And I think so many times people are not tuned in in the moment for what's needed. And that's where allyship goes wrong.
0: (laughs) You've mentioned authentic allyship, and being vulnerable. On the topic of authenticity, can authenticity be really coached? Because I also came across another quote of yours, which I found really interesting. It said that professionalism is a social construct, which made (laughs) me really reflect on this, that yes, in many ways, that's true. So my question here is, do
1: you think that authenticity is coachable You know what? I think authenticity is a decision. And if you think about it, we're all who we are. Some people are really hateful. (laughs) Some people are really nice and gentle. But it's saying who you are in that moment. And I feel that's what's really important. In this, I would say in this country, in the US, we're in different countries, but I think about it, you know, assimilation, code switching, that is really important because. Sometimes you get access to the next level. That's how you're promoted. And so I think authenticity is coach. I mean, you can coach people on that. That's what I do for people who want it. But I think that there is a risk that comes with being authentic. And everyone is not willing to take that risk because sometimes, depending on who you are, how you are as a person, it comes back to what you said about the perception and it could closed doors if your authenticity does not align with the norm of society or if it does not align with people who are in positions of power and people who have access?
0: On the DT Podcast channel, I talk a lot about microaggressions and what they sound and what they feel like mm-hmm. and also the kind of language which is inclusive and try to create more awareness about what things are just plain inappropriate to say. And Mm -hmm. I also always ask my guests what kind of microaggressions have they faced. And I'm Mm -hmm. curious to know from you, so from your personal experiences, what kind of microaggressions have you had to face in your career due to All the diversity dimensions that you bring to the table as an academic activist, as a person of color, just as a woman and many other diversity dimensions which you bring to the table. So what kind of microaggressions have you faced?
1: Well, the biggest one that I see, I guess for myself, but I hear it all the time and I, I talk about it in my coaching to potential clients and to people who want to be accomplices. You know, I talk about this issue of diversity and excellence. And many people will say that if you're enhancing the diversity of an environment, then you are losing excellence. You're doing it at the expense of excellence. And I feel that even if people don't say that out loud, there's always this assumption, or many times there's this assumption that you know, I'm in a room because I am Black or because I'm a woman, not because I'm credible, not because I can do the job, not because I earned my spot. And there's a book that an author has written about women of color. And I think the name of it is Presumed Incompetent. And I feel like that's one of the biggest microaggressions of all where people see, you know, a woman or a woman of color or a person who represents an underrepresented group, and they say, Oh, you're here because someone gave you a handout, or because someone we had to meet a quota. And when you don't give people a chance, like I've seen that, like in I've been in positions where people thought I was so underqualified that they actually said things out loud. And I've only found it out years and years after, but people admitted you know, when I was hired for a job that, you know, someone convinced them to hire me. They had to, you know, it was like twisting their arm or, you know, someone felt I wasn't qualified. And all these biases just came out and it made my job extremely difficult. And I was not given a chance to do my job well because people already decided who I was and that I was not capable to be in that space
0: a lot of companies and organizations are looking into implementing diversity quotas and diversity targets. And my personal belief is that the targets and the quotas are good because you do have to quantify in terms of the impact, but the work which needs to be done goes much deeper into tackling also the the softer aspects of biases and inherent discrimination against all kinds of diverse groups of people. And in that context, what kind of diversity targets need to be set up by companies and organizations, which really enable diverse employees to to be their authentic selves?
1: Yeah. That's yet again, a wonderful question that I think a lot of people need to think about you know, when you're thinking about targets, they really are based on the company. And what I mean by that is that if you are, let's see, pulling out another example, thinking about like a medical company, and if you're working with COVID and you don't have much diversity, but you need to, you know, develop vaccines or you need to think about how you're going to implement medical practices and communities then you need people in your organization that can understand those communities that would know the best ways to share information the best ways to gain trust you know of that community when it comes to some medical news or information and i feel that so often people try to rush immediately to saying you know we need two women or we need two black people when in reality you're saying that The vision and the mission of an organization is to attract people globally. And when you're looking at global populations, there are ways that you need to build a team so that you are serving every community as best you can and innovation is needed. And so you want that diversity so that the innovation can increase in your company, but you're also increasing marketability. You're increasing Inclusion you're increasing you know the workplace satisfaction that people have because they're seen and because they know that they can make a difference and so I mean I, I know I didn't give you like a quantitative number, but right. I feel that what I'm telling you is like the story. So often we don't have the story that goes with diversity and it's saying, I'm doing this because I'm thinking about society. I'm thinking about everybody. And when you move kind of from this checklist into understanding the full story and caring truly about the people in a space, I feel like you automatically want diversity because you must have it to fulfill your purpose.
0: Do you see organizations and your clients setting up dedicated budgets for diversity and budgets for diversity-related topics?
1: Yes, <laughs> I would say, I, I think people have budgets, mm-hmm. but I don't think that many organizations understand how to use those budgets well. I think that the diversity budgets are often add-ons in organizations that say that other things are the main priority. And when you add something on, then you could tell. When it's not your priority, then you get the results that you're trying to get. And I feel that if diversity is really important, then you need to give it the budget that you would give, you know, your main efforts, your primary efforts. And so many places can't do that. And I think it also comes back to leadership and people who just maybe don't fully embrace leadership. And as a result, they're not putting the resources into diversity that they need to, to make sure that it's not seen In this tokenized way in an organization?
0: In the last two years, there has been a tremendous increase in the number of diversity roles which have been formalized in businesses and corporates, which can sound anything like a head of diversity department or a diversity expert and so on. From (laughs) your perspective, what is the purpose of? diversity officers and these formalized diversity roles? And ultimately, who do you see being responsible and being accountable for diversity in organizations?
1: You know, I think that diversity roles in organizations kind of can be classified across this continuum. And it goes from places that we keep talking about this performative aspect but I think that there are some people who are in those positions to kind of be the police, the gatekeepers, to make sure that the company can cover its tail if anything goes wrong. And, and that person's like just the go-to person, you know, so that other people don't have to deal with issues. And then I think at the other end of that continuum, you'll see people who are very committed, like you'll see people who are rolling up their sleeves and maybe their primary role has not been diversity but they understand all aspects of a system and they see the incorporation of diversity in the larger fabric of the organization. So I think it's supposed to be everyone's role to make sure that diversity is important or that a diversity is front and center in an organization. But too often there are people who are expected to do the work who already have the passion for the work and the people who really need the training and the people who really need to lead and and be the champion, they aren't. They don't do the work. And that's why things don't change in the organization.
0: We are still living in the pandemic. In Germany, We're still we're still not out of the pandemic and working from home majority of the time has led to a lot of self-reflection how has the pandemic been for you did you embrace the fully online and the fully virtual space and the increasing social media engagement or did you have to take actual steps to really modify your lifestyle for your personal and professional mental health
1: yeah um you know i first want to acknowledge the deaths and you know just the immense loss that has happened as a result of this pandemic and I want to say it and kind of preface my comment this way and say, I feel as if the pandemic saved my life, believe it or not. And and I know that sounds like such an extreme thing to say, but I was in an environment that was very stifling. I was in a, a space where, you know, we talk about microaggressions and they're just, there weren't a lot of answers to address the injustices and the things that that I saw daily. And to have to get up and physically go into these spaces that made me physically ill, that bothered me. And what I felt about the pandemic is that it gave me security to work from home. It gave me the opportunity to turn off my camera, to control my environment, to not be around water cooler conversations or to not put myself or be forced to be in rooms that harmed me. And it's that reflection, you know, during the pandemic, I also started my Dr. Monica brand and the quotes that you saw came out. And I I just had a chance to say that wholeness was more important to me than a dollar or a title. And before the pandemic, I, w- I never would have said that. I don't think that I would have rested the way that I rest. And I'm not just saying like, "Ooh, I'm hanging out at the house watching movies all day. When I say rest, I mean, I'm taking time for myself. If something does not feel right, if, if an exchange does not feel right, then I have an opportunity to step away for a moment, to take a walk, to be by myself, to process. And that has been an amazing blessing and an unexpected outcome that I needed in my life.
0: I love the way you you've kind of communicated that because I feel that you've summarized a lot of thoughts which, which were in my head as well. And I can really resonate with that with journey of yours during the pandemic. Yeah. The podcast which you're collaborating on today was was a pandemic baby. So I had a similar approach to yours. I did a lot of self-reflection. I used the pandemic to give a bit the creative outlet a chance to really explore the topics which I would be interested in. And that's how the digitalization and diversity podcast came about. And in the episodes, I explore how the two topics impact each other. So how Digitalization creates more opportunities for diverse groups of people. But on the other hand, you do need diverse ways of thinking and more diversity in the tech and online space to accelerate digitalization. From your perspective, in in what ways have you seen digitalization and the use of technologies and digital media affect diversity?
1: you know what, it's an access issue, access. I feel that before, you know, people were confined to brick and mortar spaces and to doing work in very traditional ways. But I think that, you know, when you're looking at diversity, it's just providing more creativity, as you said, but more ways to express yourself. And it comes back to having an opportunity to communicate with a broader audience, but to also share aspects of yourself in ways that you can't in traditional ways. So getting back to what you said earlier and with my quote about professionalization as a social construct, I feel like you know, digital media, it removes that stereotype about what professionalism is And it does allow people to be authentic and to be themselves and to find more of that authenticity if they want to, you know, be different. And I'm going to use like a a social media example that I love. I've watched it more and I'm learning more is TikTok. (laughs) I used to think TikTok was just people dancing all the time, but (laughs) but I'm seeing how, you know, people are really... Displaying their expertise in these sound bites that are so practical and motivational and insightful, it's fascinating if you follow the the right people, it's almost like being in a classroom and I yeah. feel that that's another form of diversity, and that's what it means you know, just exposing yourself to people who would never enter your classroom and I always say that yeah. people who would never enter your campus, people who would never. Connect with you in your business or have a conversation with you, you know, it just broadens your reach. And that's what I love. That's what diversity is about, exposing people. And if I could say like one other thing, I'll say I've traveled to different countries, even as a professor. And, you know, I told you I'm a black woman, but I remembered, you know, when I went to China or I think I went to India. And when I met people, they wanted to touch my skin. Because they'd never seen anyone like me or, you know, people really tried to make this connection of like, how am I not from Africa, although I'm American? And I feel that so many people weren't aware that Americans could be black like me or that I could be a professor. Like it really floored people mm-hmm. um, from certain parts of the world that I could be all these things, a black woman engineering professor. And I was young and they had never seen it before. And I feel that media is so important because it exposes people who will never meet me or someone like me to the image of me yeah. and to the possibility of me.
0: Yeah, I think a year ago, actually, I read a great article on what are the differences between race, ethnicity, and nationality. Mm. And... Those are three topics, right, which a lot of people sometimes confuse with each other. But just being more aware and not mixing, mixing the three and just being more open minded in terms of what combinations and diversity can can be in these, I think is really, really important. So you mentioned TikTok. I am a TikTok fan. And I'm curious to know, do you have a favorite piece of technology or a digital tool that you have discovered?
1: Mm, I like, (laughs) tell me if this counts, but I love scheduling tools. Mm -hmm. Um, I love like Buffer is one of my tools. And I'm gonna tell you why, you know, I have it as an app. And when I'm reading like a really interesting article on Twitter, or if I see something, it helps me to cue it. Because one thing that I've learned is that, you know, you can't just tweet out 10 things at a time, but, you know, it helps to kind of say, like, you're in a different time zone. And so if I am constantly scheduling content and I'm, you know, presenting it multiple times, then that's giving more... People access to it, particularly because of algorithms and you know the frequency and, and and how they control this and and who can see what they see in every any given moment. And so I've just learned, you're sending something out one time doesn't mean that everyone in the audience that you want to see you want to see that sees it. And so you have to post across platforms. You have to change your scheduling frequency you know, how you engage, like, are you going to do a video? Are you going to do audio? Like, what does that look like? And, and, you know, when you're talking about like visualizing things, video is hard for me. It is so <laughs> hard for whatever reason. And I think it's because I think a video is perfection. I think there are some people who don't have an issue with that, but for me, you know, I want it to be perfect and I just feel like audio is easy. And that's why Twitter is also my thing. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like Twitter, you could just type it really quickly and move. Yeah. But you know, when you're doing a YouTube video or you're doing TikTok, it's like, oh, you have to think about it a little bit more. And I'm just a person who's just like get you it know, or even Instagram with with photos. It's it is more visual. And sorry if I like I said, sorry if I'm being disrespectful talking about like doubting the visualization aspect of, of stuff. But yeah, it's hard.
0: It, it is, is really
1: uh, difficult.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so how have you
1: dealt with the whole
0: Instagram Reels trend, which kind of baffled the, the influencers who weren't so comfortable with the whole visual creating Reels aspect of it? Because it
1: does take a lot of work to create a Reel. You know what? I am not one of those sophisticated Reel, reel makers. You know, <laughs> I will sit in my office and... Because like if you if you listen to my stop Play University podcast or even the way that I tweet, I've learned that my message is really great in small sound bites, yeah. so the reels work well if I just have a concept that I'm trying to say, and I feel like I have so many little sound bites that I've just given examples of throughout today's podcast, yeah, yeah. but I would take that you know, sit down and say something and that would be my real. And that just resonates with people for some reason. Like, I think I found my sweet spot where yeah. I don't have to, you know, dance and, you know, flip stuff and, you know, have yeah. like eight different angles, but it's just giving people knowledge, giving people information. And I feel like that's what's really important when you're working with media, just understanding what works best for you and how what's the best way for your message to be presented so that it does represent you authentically. I'm not a vanity person. So, you know, when it comes back to having to show my face every day, all the time, 10 times a day, that doesn't feel real to me. But sharing messages that matter and, you know, my face just happens to be shown, that matters. I like my words and my messages more than my visual.
0: As a closing question, Monica, is there a message you want to leave for the listeners?
1: Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> you know, I was just I was just talking about the importance of messaging. The thing that I always tell my coaching clients comes back to being whole. And when I look at, you know, what I profess, my goal in my business, my goal in life really is to help people and organizations emerge wiser, bolder and whole. And I think that's important. So often we get caught up in, you know, reaching that pinnacle where we we make more money and we have the titles and we have the accolades, but we could end up being very broken people or we could end up doing things that don't align with who we were supposed to be in life. And I think every day is this journey of growth where we have to get closer and closer to that ultimate purpose where even when we pass away, what we've done on this earth continues to live. I think that's the measure of life. That's, that's the ultimate goal. Continue living after you're gone because you've planted so many seeds and you've watered those seeds in ways that continue to grow once your earthly body has passed away i think that's important
0: i love listening to your podcast and these days it's it's become somewhat of a of a night routine because as you said that you have these small nuggets of messages and every day i feel that i learn something new listening to your podcast oh thank you yeah and thanks a lot for sharing all the insights today
1: on my channel. Thanks for having me, by the way. This was really good. And I wanna say really quickly, you really made me think about some stuff. Like I'm here just just really like sometimes closing my eyes and processing and being like, huh, no one's ever asked me that question before, but let me really think deeply about, you know, how I wanna respond. And so thank you for asking some excellent questions that pushed me into, you know, a deeper space in this area as well. So, so great job. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I'm really happy to collaborate with you. So thanks a lot for coming to the podcast today. How can the listeners get in touch with you?
1: So I'm on social media. um, Consistent brand is at Dr. Monica Cox. You can contact me at my business. Check out drmonicacox.com or email me info at drmonicacox.com. So yeah, just shoot me a direct message or email me and I would love to hear what you have to say. So thank you.
0: Thanks again, Dr. Cox, for coming on the show. I think we've learned a lot. Thanks also to the listeners who stayed till the end of the episode. I really enjoyed the conversation and I will put all the links to find Dr. Cox in the show notes. And I wish you all the best in your journey. Well, thank you so much. Same to you. That is it for today's episode of the Digitalization and Diversity podcast. Join us again next time as we dig deeper into a new topic of digitalization and diversity and subscribe to the channel on Instagram at the.dd.podcast and let me know what you thought of this episode. Till next time.